Well, this week, Julie and uh, our little dog, Genghis, had quite a harrowing experience. They were going for a walk innocently down the street when suddenly a big German shepherd bounded across the road from a house um, and escaped its owner and um, mauled uh, Genghis. Julie got in the way. She ended up being collateral damage as she was bowled over and hit her head and ended up with cuts and bruises. And Genghis, the dog got a fair chunk of Genghis. Fortunately, a good Samaritan, a tradie who was driving by, stopped, got out and beat the dog off, Julie, and uh, he got away with cuts and bruises and and, uh, both uh, okay. Um, But when Julie rang me after the attack happened, it surprised me with how angry I was uh, that something like this could happen. Now, I know that there are greater injustices in the world than being attacked by a dog, but when something like this threatens my wife and even our, our dog, I think it's a natural and even appropriate response to feel angry uh, at something like this happening and to feel like there's a sense of wrong that's been done that should be made right, uh, even if it's just the owner of the dog being reprimanded and warned not to let it happen again. Well, Revelation 19 and 20 is a story of things being made right. We see that the defeat of Satan and the enemies of God and his people is a reason for God's people to rejoice because it shows that Jesus the Lamb has made things right. He's restored things to the way that they're meant to be. And God has won that victory not with the weapons of this world but with the gospel. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, as we look around us at the evils and the injustice that seem to go unpunished, we thank you for the message that they will be dealt with in the end, that things will be made right. The lamb will triumph over Satan. Your people will be restored to you as the bride of the lamb. Please encourage us to persevere in being faithful in following you, knowing that standing firm in the battle will be rewarded in the end. Amen. Well, here's where we're headed today, friends. We've got three points. One, we're going to look at how it's appropriate to rejoice at the rightness of God's judgment. Two, we'll see that the wedding of the Lamb and his bride is a rejoicing at our rescue from the world and the evil one. And our third point is that we'll discover that the final battle against Satan and the enemies of God is a war that's won by the gospel and it's over before it even begins. So let's jump into chapter 19. begins with a great multitude rejoicing at God putting things right with the defeat of Babylon and the powers of evil. Pick it up from verse 1. Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So the multitude is declaring that God's judgment is just and true in condemning the prostitute and also in avenging on her the blood of Christian martyrs, those who have died for their faith. We've seen before in Revelation that judgment of the wicked is thoroughly deserved. 
thoroughly just because it's an act of rebellion against the creator of the world who rightfully deserves our worship and our whole lives being given to him. But here the focus is on the response of God's people to that judgment. The passage makes it clear that it's right and proper for us to respond to judgment in praise and joy. Why? Because we are rejoicing at God making things right. It's important to understand that this is a gloating over the defeat of your enemies. It's celebrating God making things right. Let me try to illustrate that. In World War II, uh, we all know that millions of Jews and others were murdered by the most one of the most systematic, calculating and downright evil schemes known to humankind in the history of the world, and that was the Nazi death camps. When the Allies won the war and uncovered the evil truth of what happened, there was a widespread outcry for justice to be done, for the perpetrators to pay for their crimes, for the wrongs to be righted. And that was a right, legitimate expression of the human instinct for justice. And that instinct is part of being made in God's image because it reflects God's heart for justice to be central to the way that this world should operate. As we've talked about before, we tend to be a bit squeamish when it comes to God's judgment. We shy away from talking about it, but we shouldn't because as it says here in verse 2, God's judgments are true and just. You see, no one wants to live in a world where wrongs aren't made right. Think of the, the victim of domestic abuse, the young child who's sexually abused, those who were gunned down in the mosque in Christchurch a couple of years ago. When we hear of those things happening, we all want the perpetrator to be caught, don't we? There needs to be some way in which the wrongs that are committed are made right, that justice is done. And then there, there are evils as well that are so entwined in our culture that we barely even notice them, like the way we dehumanise asylum seekers, um, like Haja Magames, who is trapped in a detention centre in Darwin. She arrived in Australia in 2013 from Iran, coming from a persecuted minority. Hajar complains that she has been denied any sense of privacy and lives in what is basically a prison where guards regularly come into her room at night, shine torches in her eyes, waking her up, harassing her. As we saw last week, evil that will be judged includes systems and economies that take away human dignity. We live in a twisted, messed up world that makes human beings into objects that have to be processed by a heartless bureaucracy. And we long for these kind of wrongs to be made right. And that day is coming. That day when there will be a final decisive defeat of the great prostitute who represents all powers across history who stand against God. And that's something to celebrate. It hasn't arrived yet, 
These two chapters are describing are describing what's going to happen when Jesus returns, the final end of the war against Satan. It's a victory that's certain. We've seen from earlier on in Revelation that it has already been sealed by Jesus' death and resurrection 2,000 years ago, by his blood bringing forgiveness from sin for us and at the same time the defeat of Satan. Well, the rejoicing continues in our second point uh, in our next section of chapter 19 as the scene changes from the multitude worshipping around the throne to the wedding banquet of the lamb and the bride. And it's a celebration of God's people being joined together with Jesus the Lamb. And the rejoicing comes about because of the victory that's been won over Babylon. Let's read from verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Alleluia, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The multitude continues with their song of praise. They start off in verse 6, declaring that the Lord God Almighty reigns. He is God the conqueror. He has defeated his enemies. The wrongs in the world have been made right. And that leads to everything being restored to its rightful place. Remember last week we saw that the prostitute who's defeated is Babylon. And we heard God calling his people to come out of Babylon, to come out of slavery. Babylon represents the the land of slavery that oppressed and persecuted God's people. Christians, the church, we have now been set free. No longer are we attacked by Satan and Babylon. The king has come and cleansed the earth of evil and oppression and sin. There is now nothing standing in the way between Jesus the bride, sorry, Jesus the lamb, the groom, and and his bride, the church. The lamb sits down with the church and they do what every culture has always done, to celebrate, they eat, they drink as they rejoice. And notice too that the bride is now fully ready for the lamb in verse 7. She has made herself ready and is clothed in fine linen that stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Friends, I wonder if you're ready for eternity with Jesus. Because that's what the wedding represents. It's a banquet between God and his people that will go on forever. It begins with Jesus' return and the final victory over Satan and Babylon. Maybe you're feeling battered and bruised by Satan's attacks. Perhaps you feel weighed down by sin and unworthy of being at the wedding. Perhaps you think, I'm not sure that I'll even be there. Or perhaps right now you're struggling with lockdown and feeling just unmotivated and and spiritually dry. Church on Zoom isn't the same. 
It's hard at times like this for this magnificent picture of God's victory and rejoicing to break through the grey reality of uh, and boredom of, of every day being the same. Friends, no matter how you feel right now, no matter how you're doing, this is your future if you trust in Jesus. Verse 9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You have that invitation in your hand because you have been sealed with the name of the Father on your forehead. And it's certain because you have been called and chosen from before the creation of the world. Maybe that's hard for you to imagine right now, hard to imagine now that you'll be ready on that day. You'll be ready not because of how hard you work, not because of the good things you do, but because the Lamb has already made sure that you will be ready because you are washed by his blood, declaring you clean from sin and ready for the wedding banquet. So, friends, we should be confident, confident of the God who loves us so much that he spilled his blood for us and has prepared this future for us. And if you're weary, weary of Zoom meetups, weary of church online, weary of trying to keep going when you feel dry, remember that the Lamb is so invested in you that he gave his life not just to save you, that in itself is a wonderful, amazing message. But he has bound himself to you for eternity in a marriage. He wants to love you and be in relationship with you forever. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Well, after that wonderful scene of the wedding banquet, the the scene changes dramatically back to the sobering reality of judgment. It's looking at the victory that has already been described back in 17 and 18. So this scene in Chapter 19, it's like a different camera angle of the same scene, a different perspective to what's already happened. Uh, And this perspective emphasises the way that Jesus has conquered, how Jesus the King wins the war. And my third point is that it's a war that's won by the gospel. Our scene starts off in 19 verse 11 with a very different description of Jesus to the one that we just had in the wedding banquet. Pick it up from verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. This is a picture of Jesus that stands in brilliant contrast to the, to the woman uh, Babylon that we saw last week. Remember that she also was riding 
um, riding not a horse but a beast. That woman was a prostitute who specialised in unfaithfulness to God. The rider of this horse is called Faithful and True. Babylon lived by injustice, oppressing and persecuting, but the rider here judges and wages war with justice. He is a king with many crowns on his head. His name is the word of God and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who was with God in the beginning because he is God, the word who created the world out of nothing just by speaking a word. What's fascinating about this description of Jesus and the weapons he employs to defeat the evil powers of the world is that they are the same weapons of the gospel that Jesus armed himself with at the cross to defeat Satan. It's because of his faithfulness that Jesus obeyed to the point of death. We saw earlier in Revelation that it's the blood of the lamb that he shed on the cross that has brought us victory. And it's through his word about himself that we hear and accept the gospel. And it's the word that is the weapon that strikes down the enemies, the armies of the enemy. Have a look in verse 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That sword is the word of God. The same word that Jesus used in the wilderness, remember, back in early in Jesus' ministry, to defeat the temptations of Satan. Now, this war is also a war that involves us, God's people. We tucked in there just in one verse, in verse 14. The armies of heaven, it says, were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, of course, the armies of heaven are often referring to mighty angels uh, who fight on God's side. But the clue that in, in this particular instance it's a church The clue comes in the description of what we're wearing, fine linen, white and clean. It's exactly the same description of the clothes that we've been given in the wedding banquet. So we know that it's a reference to us riding those horses. But we don't have to do much because it's all done by Jesus. As we saw in verse 15, he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. But it doesn't mean that we have no role to play in this battle. It says we are following the king on white horses. It's Jesus who achieves the victory, but we are still in the battle. And our job is to follow the king, to go wherever he leads us, to trust in his strength, to rely on his power to defeat the enemy. Now, it doesn't mention that we have any weapons, does it? It only talks about what we clothed in for battle, the fine linen, white and clean. As we've seen before, the clothing given us to us by the lamb, symbolising that we are pure, innocent of sin, forgiven in God's sight. This is the fruit of the victory that was won on the cross. 
Friends, that's how we fight in this war, by clothing ourselves with that truth, by following the king, disarming Satan's lies and accusations against us that tell us that we're not good enough, that we haven't earned a place at the wedding, trusting in the king, following him. And friends, at this time in lockdown, you may feel like you go through each day without doing much. You don't see anyone. You, you, if you do go outside your front, front door, it's only for a bit of exercise. Um, apart from that, you, you might feel like you're just doing nothing at home. But what you can do is approach each day with an attitude of thankfulness for what God has done. You can pray that his kingdom would come and make things right. You can follow the king in a hundred different little ways and decisions that you make throughout your your day, in the way you respond to the 11 a.m. update from our premier each day, in the way that you choose to relate uh, with grace and patience uh, to your parents, your spouse, your kids, your housemate, whoever you happen to be locked up in your house with, no matter how small and insignificant, you can follow the king in the direction you're going, even in lockdown. Now, like so much of Revelation, um, it's not easy to work out the details of this passage. The big picture is clear. Satan has been defeated by Jesus. Um, That is clear. But exactly how that happens, that's not so clear. And so so it is here. You may think that I'm actually making things too neat. Uh, I might seem to be ironing out the tricky bits. Um, Aren't I perhaps trying to make this story into an, uh, that's really an MA rated story with lots of blood and gore into a PG story. Uh, What about all the blood and guts in the story? Isn't the blood in verse 13, for example, the blood of God's enemies and not Jesus' blood? Uh, Then there's this pretty graphic picture in the verses that follow about the birds of the air being invited to eat the flesh of kings, captains, the flesh of all people. Pretty gruesome stuff. It is absolutely true that judgment is real and that will involve the real death and real suffering of those who oppose God. And Jesus' victory over them is real too. So I'm not just trying to spiritualise the reality of Jesus crushing his enemies. Jesus' victory is real. The final defeat of Satan and Babylon are real. But the consistent message of Revelation is the consistent message of the whole Bible, and that is that God's kingdom is radically different to the world, and the rule of that kingdom is brought about by the faithfulness of the king and not by muscle and sword. It's a victory won by love and sacrifice of the lamb who gave his life to buy forgiveness, and in doing that, He disarmed the weapons of Satan, the weapons of accusation and guilt. It's a wonderful, unexpected, 
upside-down victory won by the gospel. Well, as we move to chapter 20, it's all about the final defeat of Satan. Um, don't worry, uh, we're not going to spend much time on this. We've already seen how that's going to come about. What this last chapter describes is a war that's won before it even begins. As we've seen before, it was won at the cross and the resurrection. The moment that Jesus gave up his life for our sin, he sealed Satan's fate. And so his final capture is quick, it's decisive, and it's kind of an anticlimax. Satan is seized and thrown into a bottomless pit for a thousand years, we're told. During that time, um, those who had been beheaded for their faith come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. After the thousand years is over, Satan will be released for a short time. There is a final battle. It doesn't even say that there's fighting. But fire comes down from heaven. Satan is seized and thrown into a lake of fire. Those whose names aren't written in the book of life are judged. And finally, a beautiful final note. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The curse of death that came with Adam and has hung like a great cloud over humanity ever since has now been destroyed once and for all. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of this chapter, as I said, but just a quick word about the thousand years before we bring it home. In six short verses, we told about those who are martyred coming to life and reigning for a thousand years with Christ. Uh, I don't know if you've encountered this, but uh, I mention this because this has traditionally um, got way more airtime in some circles than it deserves. Um, movies have been made about it, books written about it, whole theologies have been constructed around this. But it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Not by Jesus, not by Paul, nada, nothing. Which tells us that at the end of the day, it's actually not that important an issue. Sure, it's good to understand it if we can, but the data is pretty thin on the ground. Despite the confident proclamations of some, we really don't know when this will happen and what it will look like. The key to reading Revelation, as we've said before, is to understand the big picture. Like a magnificent painting, what is the impression that it's leaving? And the impression uh, that Revelation 19 and 20 leaves is that Jesus has defeated the enemies of God. He has defeated Satan and even death. And that is reason to rejoice. And the wonderful climax of that is that the Lamb has restored us, God's people, the church, to his side. He has made us his bride and we have been made into the people we are meant to be. And that is reason to celebrate.